Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Tweaked Audio. If you need new earbuds or some headphones, go to tweakedaudio.com and enter the promo code other people, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. When you do that, you get 33% off of any purchase over at Tweaked Audio. Tweakedaudio.com. Enter the promo code other people. When you do that, you get 33% off. I just said it twice. You can get some headphones. You can get some earbuds. There's all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors at tweakedaudio.com. These are earbuds. These are headphones. You can listen to things with them. Go and get some. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Folks, here we go again. This is (laughs) it. This is other people. This is me over here doing what I'm doing. This is you at a later date listening to me over here. How's it going? Did you get that? Did that make sense? Uh, My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. Thank you for listening. I have a wonderful show for you today. Stephen Elliott is on the program. He is the founding editor of the online literary magazine, The Rumpus. He is the author of seven books, including uh, The Adderall Diaries and Happy Baby, He is also a filmmaker. He has directed three movies to date, the latest of which is called After Adderall. It will premiere later this summer on July 30th at the Rumpus Lo-Fi Los Angeles Film Festival. So uh, my conversation with Stephen Elliott in just a second. I want to tell you uh, a story about Adderall, a personal story, my personal history, my very limited personal history with Adderall. Uh, I've only done it once. And uh, forgive me if I've, if I've told this story before on this program. But uh, I, I did Adderall one time. I was curious about it. Uh, I felt like it uh, had a moment, a cultural moment, uh, perhaps uh, partially due to uh, Stephen Elliott. But it was in the ether. I was reading about it in magazines. 
and uh, on the internet and so on about how people, and in particular I was reading about how people were using it as a cognitive performance enhancer, sort of like uh, steroids, like academic steroids, like kids at Ivy League schools were using Adderall to get a competitive edge and so on and so forth. Writers were using it, artists to stay focused, to be productive. So it sort of got me curious and a friend of mine was able to uh, get me an Adderall pill and I had this idea for a book and I should say here too that this uh, this interest of mine was rooted in a dream and the dream was to write a really good book in like nine days or like you know nine or ten days which is to say it was rooted in laziness <laughs> wanting things to be easy or easier than they normally are and uh, I was hoping that Adderall would, would uh, assist me in this quest and uh, I was also hoping, of course, that it wouldn't be something that was super detrimental to my health because at the time, my daughter was like a year old or uh, possibly two. And so obviously uh, an Adderall habit doesn't uh, work very well with the responsibilities of fatherhood. So it, it wasn't something that I was interested in long term. It was more uh, of a controlled experiment. I was going to take Adderall for a very brief amount of time. I was going to write a very good book and that would be it. And the book was going to be called Dadderall. She's going to be a dad on Adderall. Writing very quickly. <laughs> that was my concept. That was my. It was a high concept book. Which I remain... Somewhat confident in. I think it's a good title anyway. And uh, I'm also now thinking that perhaps this title has already been used. Because it's kind of an obvious title. Or if it hasn't been used then I feel like someone is going to use it soon. It's imminent. So, uh, anyway, I went to a coffee shop with my Adderall pill. Because when you have an Adderall pill, the most logical place to go is a place where they sell more amphetamines. <laughs> uh, so I went to this coffee shop. I wanted to work. I needed to get out of the house. I had my Adderall. It was like 9 a.m., I took my Adderall. I think I got a tea. I didn't get a coffee. I felt like that would be too much. But I got a tea just because I felt like I needed to order something. And I took my Adderall. And I sat there for like nine hours. And I tried to write. And uh, I didn't come up with anything. In nine hours. That I recall. Nothing good anyway. I think I was on my phone. I think I was probably on the internet. Uh, it didn't happen for me. There was no mad rush. There was no, like, Kerouacian explosion of feeling. It was a failed experiment. Dadderall. <laughs> so yeah, that's it. That's my Adderall story. That's all I have. I feel like it's decidedly less interesting than uh, Stephen Elliott's uh, experiences with Adderall and uh, and his new movie. So why don't we get to Stephen Elliott with that in mind. Uh, his new movie, After Adderall, premieres on July 30th at the Rumpus Lo-Fi Los Angeles Film Festival. Here he is, folks. This is Stephen Elliott. It's funny. like it's It's a thing I've heard. It's like the way I've been described, yeah. right? That like... 
that I, I do things, but I mean, like I've, you know, I've published seven books, but I haven't really had a job. You know what I mean? I've been like getting by in these small time hustles, you know, this way and that way. I mean, if it's what you do full time, then why wouldn't you, you know, it takes two years to write a book. Right. I'm 44 years old. Right. I've never had a career job. By choice. Well, I think by default. <laughs> well, but, you know, I think people who are wired to write books or who have that uh, impulse a lot of times have a really difficult time fitting into a more traditional career mode. You know, I did I formed this organization in San Francisco when American Apparel was trying to open on Valencia, and this was before San Francisco just exploded. And uh, I didn't want them to come in on Valencia. I lived right by there. And I started organizing all these merchants. And we stopped American Apparel from opening, but it was all these small entrepreneurs. And I realized, like, these were writers. These were just, like, people who couldn't work for other people right. for the most part. And they right. were very similar to the artists I've known uh, who are just kind of entrepreneurs, really, of a, of a sort. And, and can't tolerate authority? or <laughs> Don't quite fit in, need to work on their own schedule. Yeah. You know, can't, can't harness it from 9 to 5 and then turn it off. Right. And you and you've known this about yourself. Is this something like you always knew, or is this something you sort of discovered? Like when you hit like thirty-five, you're like, "Oh, I guess this isn't." <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I've never been good at holding a job. You know, I was. Uh, I mean, I was a drug dealer, in in college and after, or certainly after college, I was a stripper. You know, then I studied cinema and I did a master's in cinema, and then I was like living out of my car for a, a good chunk of time. And then I was like an LSAT instructor. You know what I mean? I didn't. Yeah. I didn't really know what I wanted to do and what I wanted to be, but I was always writing. So I've, uh, I just didn't imagine that anybody would ever want to publish it and that I could make a living doing it. And then, you know, I, I sent these two books to, this, to a new publisher and applied for the Stegner Fellowship at Stanford. I right. never studied writing, but I had been writing every day for since I was like nine or ten. And so... That early? Literally, yeah. I had, my walls were covered in poetry. When I was oh, a child. Okay. Um, I didn't start writing short stories until I was in college, but I had literally probably written a poem every day throughout my entire childhood. So where did you go to undergrad? Went to University of Illinois. Okay. I mean, I had, it was a crazy thing, right? Because I left home when I... The, the whole... The short version of the story is I left home when I was 13, and I slept on a rooftop for a year, and I was a homeless kid. In Chicago? <laughs> in Chicago. You slept on the rooftop in the winter? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd break into boiler rooms at certain points, and uh, at some point... Um, I got arrested. By that time, my father had moved, so the state took custody of me. I didn't go to high school for two years. I was in a variety of group homes. And year, two years, year and a half, then at some point, <clears throat> I decided I wanted to go to the normal school because I was in this bad kid school for group home kids. And I saw these monkeys going to the school <laughs> across the street. And I was like, I'm not, they're not better than me. And I made a deal with the principal to go there. If I got straight A's, I'd go to normal school. And I made him sign a contract, which he did. You did? Yeah, but you True know what? Kid. It's like, and, you know, it's not hard. It wasn't like school where it's hard to get straight A's. It wasn't like yeah, Exeter, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so I did that, and I graduated high school in two years. And then I got, uh, I quit drugs. I got scholarships from the, for being a ward of the state because um, the state had taken custody of me. And so I was able to go to University of Illinois without paying. And I got out of University of Illinois. I started shooting heroin, became a stripper, you know, overdosed. Then went Did you almost to, die? I, yeah, I was in the hospital for eight days. Oh, God. I had a very serious overdose. I was unable to move. 
really paralyzed. What do you remember from it? I don't remember anything from the from the overdose. That's not, I, mean, I mean, it's like it's like a twelve hour period of time that's completely blanked out. It's gone. And then the fireman carrying me down three flights of stairs. Who found you? Oh, I woke up at some point, and and it took me literally hours, I think, to crawl to the phone and dial nine one one. Oh my god! You know, it was a full on. There's a real, very real. Overdose. You were shooting heroin. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I like needles. Okay. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In your movie, I was, I was like, oh, there was a scene uh, with the uh, nipple piercing or whatever, yeah. where I had to turn away. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, yeah, because like I, I read Adderall Diaries. I think I actually emailed you after reading. I really liked it. Um, but as is like my way, you know, I read books, I love them, and then I have a you know some difficulty remembering exact details. But I know it had a lot to do with your father. I think I remember the opening line. It was something to the effect of, "My father may have killed a man." Mm-hmm. Right, right. right. Um, but the circ- I know in a in a broad way, the circumstances of your upbringing were very difficult, and the it's fact the, the, more the f- different than difficult. Unusual, I think. Okay. <clears throat> but the group homes were also, <clears throat> there was a lot of like really intense friendships. Yeah. You know, there were group homes where we were like, we were up playing dice all night, you know, and staff couldn't come upstairs overnight because there was only one staff. Uh-huh. So it wasn't safe, right? Right. So by the rules were, they could not come upstairs. We were having huge parties. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> not like, so bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it was good and bad. You know what I mean? It was like, I definitely had a lot of fun as a, as a child I, or as a kid in these ho- in the homes. It wasn't, it wasn't like all, all tragic. I don't really love that characterization of it. Um, but it, by most people's standards, it's difficult. You can't, you've overcome more challenges than most. Huh? I don't know. I don't know. It's not a contest, you know? Yeah. I, everybody has a hard childhood. Yeah. Everybody, everybody has a hard life. Yeah, yeah, really, it's true, and I, and a lot of things have gone my way. Yeah, you know. Well, you got that Stegner Fellowship. That, that that was amazing. I'm a white male, so I I get a whole bunch of things I don't even realize. Yeah, half the time. Right, you know? right. And then what? Like, was that the turning point though for you as an artist and as a writer when you got the Stegner? It was. It was like all of a sudden. I mean, I sold these two books and I got the Stegner Fellowship in the same month. Who'd you sell the books to? Uh, McAdam Cage. Okay. So they were a new publisher at the time. Yeah. But they gave me. I had written three books already and not really published anything. And suddenly I had 18,000 books. So I had $36,000 worth of advances on these books that were written. And I had the Stegner Fellowship. So I was going to be able to like teach writing if I wanted to. It was like all of a sudden I went from like uh, just some guy who was like, I figured I would get into advertising or something. Right. Write some jingles. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I knew writing was just this thing I did on the side. And then suddenly I was like a writer. Yeah. And it was kind of overnight. As far as, you know, as far as identity goes, like someone, uh, I want to say like, I don't know, I got this like criticism from somebody for not recognizing this a person as a writer when she already had an agent and she was doing an MFA and stuff. Or like, I didn't, you know, I didn't have an agent when I sold, but I didn't think, I didn't think of myself as a writer, you know, until all of a sudden I was a writer. But it was something that you always did. It was something I did, but it wasn't my identity. Is it something that you still do? Uh, yeah, I still wake up and I write every day. Um, the very first part of my day is always a couple hours with a pen and paper. I usually uh, don't have my computer or phone. You write by hand. Time. I write by hand, and I also have this like really cool Neo 4 uh, word processor that runs on AA batteries. Ah. And it has a little screen, and you can't get online or anything. Right. And it's like enforced discipline. Yeah, so you can just, you can, and there's no mouse. You can just, it's all first draft. Oh, so you can't go, you can't like, like neurotically edit yourself constantly? No. Okay. Right? I mean, you can, you can go back with a cursor like you would in a typewriter. Right. But that's all you can do. Yeah. Um, See, that's my problem. I, I spend so much time 
editing and re-editing and editing and re-editing. Oh my god, I love this thing so much. I do so much of my best writing on it, and then when I'm done, I go to my computer and I plug it in through a cable, and it transfers into a text document. But it transfers at the same speed that it takes to type it. Oh, really? So literally, I'll be typing for an hour, and now plugging my computer, it'll take an hour for the transfer. Oh my god! So I can't like use, you know, that's an exaggeration, but it's not a, not a big exaggeration. What's this machine called? The Neo. It's called the Neo Four, uh, Neo G Four, just Neo Four. It's from like a long time ago, but yeah. you can find them used on Amazon. Yeah, because I remember when like I first twenty five bucks. When I went to college, I had this thing. It was like my brother. Remember that company? Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was like one of those. They're little, still weird little word processors. This was, you know, because I went to college in ninety three. They're still making those. They are. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Because like by '95 there was email. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm that generation. We're kind of similar generations. Yeah. We like mm-hmm. we we had an analog childhood. Right. Are you glad for that? It's funny. I mean, we're the we're the first generation to uh, we're the only generation that will ever uh, uh, worry about spending too much time online. You know, my girlfriend's like more like a little more than ten years younger than me, and she doesn't even think about it. No. Me, I'm always like. I feel terrible if I to spend too much time on the internet. And then for them, it's like they're like that. For them, it's like being a fish and being worried about being in water. They're like, what, what are you talking about? Exactly. Who cares? Exactly. But they don't know what it was like to not have it. Yeah. There was yeah. a time when I was not quite this scattered. I have to believe that. Yeah, I believe that for myself as well. And um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, everything would have been so different. It's it's hard to even imagine. Hard to imagine the way that it used to be. No, it's hard to imagine how things would have been had I had internet. I mean, I'm, I think I would have left a horrible trail of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had multiple conversations on this show and just in my life with people my age who were like, thank God we didn't have smartphones and social media when we were in college. You know, it would have been yeah. a disaster. I was, you know, I was so hyper-political at one point and so sure I was right. Yeah. You know, I worked for Ralph Nader in 2000. Yeah? Do you feel yeah. any guilt about that? Uh, a little bit. It was not the right decision. Yeah, I, I voted for Nader... In I mean, Colorado, I, I, but I, I traded my vote. I remember trading my vote with a friend who was in a state that was not quite as... Like, I was a responsible funny. Nader voter. You know, I, was, I was, like, literally working for the campaign. I got my checks from Nader for president. Oh, and wow. I was giving speeches throughout, like, the Deep South. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> you were on the stump. <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's cool. That's a good experience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, like, it's good to be... I mean, I don't know. I was just so... But I was so political. And before that, you know, at one point I thought of myself as an anarchist. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just... I was, it was so, everything was so black and white to me. I talked to Dennis Cooper on this show and he's an anarchist. God, I love that guy. Yeah. That's a great writer. Yeah. And he has, but he had like a Fisk. And he's got this very calm, like demeanor. And he explained anarch, you know, being an anarchist to me, it made total sense. I left that interview like I'm an anarchist. <laughs> I like worship that guy. And, you know, I met him and it was just so clear to me that he hadn't read my books. and didn't care or anything. And I was kind of crushed, but at the same time, like, I get it, you know, but he's just, amazing he like he blazed like all the trails yeah you know he's and he, and he in lo- paris and he loved the rumpus i mean he really knew all about the rumpus and he was all into that well that's the thing about him though is that he's a writer of a generation um and i don't i don't want to sound ageist at all but i think writers of his generation often don't embrace the online with like the um dexterity or the know-how that, that he has he's really great online yeah you know mm-hmm. and he's like totally aware of what's going on not only um, digitally and in, in, in the online sense, but also like across uh, generations, like he's I mean, very tuned in. I just think of him as the guy that wrote Fisk and Try, yeah, the book Try. I mean, Jesus, what a writer! Yeah, the sentences and an anarchist. He's a he's a fucked up individual, but he's so, so amazing. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and you know, now, you know, just to make a leap, um, you know, the past several years, you've gone from being uh, a writer of books, which you still are, but now you're also a filmmaker. 
So yeah. can you talk a little bit about the decision to do that and how that's... It's funny. I'm like, I don't even think I feel like... I don't even know if I make these kind of decisions. It's like when I finished the Adderall Diaries, I was so written out. I just written myself... I just... Empty. Yeah, I just scraped it clean. Yep. I had nothing left. I didn't want to write. I, I knew I needed a break. And I so I decided I'd be an editor because what else would I know how to do at this point? All I've done is write. And so I tried to to join the Huffington Post because I had interviewed Ariana Huffington and I had this whole idea for a book page. They didn't have books on the Huffington Post yet. I was like, let's do a book page and, uh, and I was meeting with her. I spent a whole day with her and then I realized she's not going to do any of this. And then like, how hard is it to start a website? Right. <laughs> so I just put up, started doing the rumpus. I did that for a while and then, um, you know, James Franco bought the rights to the Adderall Diaries right. and I wrote the script for him originally. They didn't use the script that I wrote but originally I wrote the script and it was just taking them too long to get anything done. And I was like, man. Did you get paid to write the script? I did not. You did not. You wrote <laughs> it on spec. Yeah, I thought I was getting paid to write the script. Yeah. Franco does this a lot, actually, with a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> I know quite a few people that have had this experience with him where you think you're being hired, but actually you're being asked to do something for free. That happens and, a lot to writers, period. Yeah, it's true. And um, so I wrote the script, but then I just kept going. I enjoyed it so much. Because I had my names on books already. I had seven books, and I didn't care. I was having so much fun with screenwriting. It's such a raw, pure form of writing. I just kind of kept going and wrote another script. It's also easier. It was easier than writing a book. For it's sure. easier than writing a it's book. It's like writing a magazine article. It yeah. takes a couple months. To yeah, write exactly. A it, 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 you can get from A to Z quick, more quickly. It's, well, it's a lot fewer words. Yeah. <laughs> but I really enjoyed it, and also it was like suddenly I was writing fiction again because these scripts were fiction. And so I just wrote another script with my friend Lorelai. And I was like, I'm just going to shoot this. Right? I wrote it in December 2010. And I asked James to be in it. He was he just bought my book. And so it was kind of part of the deal. He only gave me 2500 for the rights, for the to option. Uh-huh. And so kind of like, okay, I'm not, you're, not really give, you're not really giving me any money for the book, but just be in my movie. And he said, okay. And then because he was in it, we were able to get Heather Graham. We were able to raise like $700,000, all <laughs> because James Frank was in it. And then I was looking for a director. I couldn't really find anybody I liked. I didn't know anything about movies. I didn't know any people that made movies. Yeah. Uh, so I was like, I'll just direct it. You know, set in the world of porn. I used to be a sex worker. I know this <laughs> world. I'll just, I'll just direct it myself. And then. And that's that movie is Cherry. That's movie, is, yeah, Cherry. Yeah. When it was released. It was called About Cherry. And I just fell in love with directing. Man, working with actors, I had no idea that I would like actors so much. I never saw this coming, but like. I understand actors. Well, what I mean, is it about actors that you understand? First off, they're on the emotional edge. They are humiliating themselves continually. They're putting themselves fully out there. Like the best writers don't put themselves as far out there as an actor does. An yeah. actor is just like putting themselves all the way out there. Really uh, dangerous. Well, yeah, emo- the, the emotionally be- dangerous. And, like, and you have to do that. You have to come back into yourself and maintain your shape and sense of self. And then you have to do it again. And I just think it's so beautiful. And then you see, when you see these actors reading your words back to you, I always imagine the script was like 100, and everything was a percentage of that. But actually, so like, you know, a good movie was like an 80, mm, right? Yeah. 100, a good movie was like an 80. But actually, an actor will make your script better right. than it was. So it would be 120. It started at 100, now it's actually better. And when, a, when an actor makes something I've written into something better... My, my heart swells in my chest. It's literally, like, I'm like, oh, that's what love is. There yeah, it is. Yeah. Now, now I get it. That's what I meant to say. Yeah, it's so <laughs> beautiful. It's so, I just fell in love with it. 
Well, you know, like you were talking about like the best actors and how much they put of themselves out there. And like the word that came to mind for me is vanity. There's no vanity in a great acting, in a great actor, a great performance. But there's, there's also a depth of need, you know, like there's a hole inside these people that makes them the, the great artists. And I get that. I have that hole. And my favorite writers have that hole in them. What is it? What is it? It's just a hole, like a sense of emptiness or yeah, loss. It's, or... It's, a, it's a need that can't be filled, you know, and you try to fill it by creating art and you're never going to really do more than put a bandaid over it. To, to get approval, win love. Yeah. And when I'm directing actors, I feel so paternal. I feel so like just fatherly. You know what I mean? Like I want them to do well. I love them unconditionally. You know, I give them this like this sense that they can just make it and it's like so first off I'm my best self when I'm directing Uh I want so much for these people I want to like liberate them I want to encourage them and you have empathy I have so much empathy for them and I never I've never had any desire even to like have sex with one of my actresses because it's such a it's such a uh, parental kind of thing it's so like uh, it's almost it's almost too intimate. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. That it would be like completely not okay. It, like it would never cross my mind. Yeah. Like literally. Um, like my current girlfriend, she's not an actress, but she was the assistant director uh, on my last movie, and um, I and I didn't ever know. I mean, she was obviously beautiful. I never noticed her as a sexual being until long after the movie was over. It just was, you just don't even think that way when you're directing. I don't, when I'm directing, I can't even think that way. It was funny. It's funny that you said, I was just thinking of like heart surgery. I was thinking, I was trying to think of a parallel environment in which sexual feelings, no matter how good looking someone was, would never enter. I would imagine like in like some sort of really delicate surgery, <laughs> you're never going to be like, God, I'd love to have sex with that person right now. Sort yeah. of, maybe sort of similar. It's just such a beautiful thing. I just love I love actors so much. I love being around them. I love who I am around them. Hmm. And then now recently I started acting. In my last movie, Yeah, uh, my first time acting. It's my third movie. It's called After Adderall. It's called After Adderall. And it's a nuts movie. You know, it's a movie about James Franco making a movie about me. Because they did eventually, five years later, finish The Adderall Diaries. And it premiered at Tribeca. I had nothing to do with the movie. I wasn't allowed on set. I wasn't uh, allowed to... Why not? Why not? Why was this? Why were you excluded from it? I don't know. It's weird because my friends who have had movies made out of their books like Cheryl Strayed and Nick Flynn and Anthony Swafford were all really involved. But uh, when I asked to come on set, they were filming it like down the street basically from where I lived. And they, I was told very explicitly like, no. <laughs> and I think it's just they just felt that there was a first time director. Maybe she was worried that I, I would have some kind of conflict with Franco or make people nervous. I, it was fine, you know, like whatever she needs, I'm going to go along with that. But then they were doing test screenings and I was like, oh, do you want my feedback on the movie? They're like, no, that's okay. So I wasn't allowed to come to test screening. Then, but they're like, we'll invite you to everything. Don't worry, don't worry. Then they were premiering at Tribeca and the director contacts me for like some uh, credit thing. Like, how did I want my name spelled or something? And I was like, aren't you going to tell me that the movie's premiering at Tribeca? Like, do you think that I don't know right. that the movie's tr- uh, based on my memoir is premiering at Tribeca and I live in New York? Yeah. You know? Um, so it was super, it was weird. But then, you know, uh, the director then blocked me on Twitter and was, got very upset. And then the producer called and apologized and gave me a couple tickets to the premiere. And I saw the movie and it was a weird experience. Sure. You know, uh, just seeing your life, just my memoir. And there's James Franco playing me and there's Ed Harris playing my dad. And the movie was so... It just had nothing to do with the book. 
It was just a completely different story. And there's me in the movie reading from a book that I didn't write. A guy named Stephen Elliott reading from this awful book that's from this script. It's not my book, you know? <laughs> and um, everything about it, I was, I was like, why didn't they just change my name? It was so weird. But I mean, I was glad they made it. I sold a bunch of books and I bought a house in New Orleans with the $85,000 I got when they made the movie. Oh, cool. Um, so everything was great about it. And, uh, but then I, I just got thinking about all the ideas and it just inspired me to do a movie called After Adderall, which is a movie about James Franco making a movie about me. It's like a meta. It's a meta yeah, comedy my, kind of almost. Yeah. Cause my friend was like, you know, the Adderall Diaries movie hasn't actually been made. <laughs> and that was where I started thinking about it. I was like, that's true. Cause in a way after Adderall is much more like the Adderall Diaries than the Adderall Diaries movie is. Cause it's all ideas. Well, there's also like, there's an element, there's a Stephen Elliott character, um, and it's, uh, true crime, you know, cause like, like Adderall Diaries, the book is true crime and memoir mixed together. And there's an, an a noirish crime element to after Adderall. And then there's also like a memoir, a first person right, well, story there's, happening. There's my roommate who doesn't want to be a character in my movie. Yeah. She wants to be the star of her own movie. Right. And so she has this kind of crime drama going on with her boyfriend She's a she's a prostitute, and he's a, her client. He's also a police officer, um, and so he's a boyfriend client cop, right. right? And so there's this whole her story is a love story, and it's kind of the thing that's going on with that. She and throughout the movie, we're fighting in voiceover basically about who the movie is about, right? You know, and it's all about like who gets to tell whose story, you know, and also like what happens when the narrative changes, when like like at one point, you know, I, I break into. A house. I'm looking for a reading of the Adderall Diaries, and it's you know Michael C. Hall is there, and he's a director, and they're doing a different movie altogether. And he's like, you know, you're in the wrong movie, and I'm like, well, they're somewhere in the city. They're they're doing a movie about my life, and he's like, your your life or your book about your life? Because <laughs> it's this very interesting question, right? You know, you know how this is. You write a memoir, and if 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 you work at it really hard and you scrape yourself clean. That memoir is accurate to you for maybe three years. That's right. the best memoirs. Yes. The ones that really go for it. Most memoirs are probably more like a year and a half, <laughs> you know? Right. And so it's like, but then, then what? Like, I'm not the person in the Adderall Diaries anymore. I don't really know who that person is. I mean, that's seven years ago, right? So, so what does it mean for them to make a movie out of my life? That's not my life anymore. That's not me. It's now it's just something else. So, so the, it get the, the movie is very funny, but it also gets into the questions that are kind of at the heart of like a, a lot of like uh, creative writers. Well, what, what like what about you know you have a memoir, somebody buys the rights to it, they want to adapt it, the director wants authorial control. What about just saying, well, you know what, she's going to have her interpretation of it. It doesn't have to hew to my vision or what I would expect from it. I mean, right, do, do you right. have a do you have a detachment there, or do, it sounds like you might have wish that it were different. Well, I mean. There's a guy named Stephen Elliott in this movie that, that is put out there as a true story. Right. And this guy does some horrible things that I didn't do. <laughs> and so that's weird. Like, people think I'm like a James Fry type character because the guy in the movie writes a book, a memoir, a best-selling memoir, which, by the way, I've never done that. <laughs> and uh, in this book, he claims that his father is dead. And his father shows up at a reading and is like, do I look dead to you? This big fancy reading. And it's like... I didn't write a book claiming my father was dead. I mean, who would do that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> like, of course you're going to get caught. Like, there's no way to get away with that. Right. You know, it's just such a dumb thing. But people see the movie, quite a few more people, I think, than have read the book, 
And that's what they think. They think I wrote this best-selling memoir where I claim my father was dead. Well, at least they, they have you as a bestseller. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And, and then they end up buying the book, and that's great. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a little weird, but on balance, I would do it again. I'm glad they made it. Yeah. I would, I would you know, I get it. You sell the rights. It's theirs now. You have no say in it. You know, you have no right to a say. I mean, contractually, I could have forced my way on the set because they are supposed to give you meaningful consultation. Yeah. But they don't... That means they have to listen to you. They have to let you tell them your opinions. They don't have to follow them. That's what meaningful consultation is. So I don't want to force my way on set or into the editing room if you don't want me there. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. mess with your process. Right. But I'm, I'm very glad they made the movie, and I hope people, you know, I guess I hope people see it. I hope the movie does as well as possible. I think it's great for me. Um, but the best thing I got out of that movie was it inspired me to make this other movie. Well, I was going to say, like in the world that we live in now, the media landscape that we exist in now, like you can you can make your own response movie almost. Well, also it's just like you cannot put a price on inspiration. Inspiration is like the greatest gift in the world. Yeah. I mean, I, I this this script poured out of me in two weeks, and I made this movie for ten thousand dollars. I've never had as much fun making a movie. What'd you shoot it on? Well, we shot it on a on a red Epic. My okay. friend who has a very fancy camera donated the camera. He had shot my, my previous movie, so he was a very legit cinematographer. Um, but a lot of it's also shot on a 5D because we always had a second camera shooting at the same time. Oh, right. That's just a style thing. But uh, it was just such a great creative experience because I don't have contracts with any of the actors in the movie. There's, I don't have contracts with anybody in the movie. It's a non-commercial movie. We used all this found footage from like the Tribeca red carpet and stuff, and it's like there's no uh, there's no... Uh, thoughts of like making money on this movie. We can't make money on this movie. Like we don't actually own the movie. There's no paperwork. Right. There's no rights. Right. You know, we just the movie just exists. Um, and with that, and I had worked a full time job for a year and a half, and I had this extra money, and I spent the money making this movie. And some people would buy a car, but this is what I did. I wanted to make this movie, and it was like the best, most like creatively rewarding experience. And I really loved acting. Yeah. Which, you're, you know, pretty, I, you're pretty good. I mean, like, I listen, uh, it's not easy to be on camera, but, like, you have an ease. And, like, uh, I hope this isn't, like, uh, this is just the first thing that popped into my head, but there's, like, a Woody Allen-ish com- comedic character to you. And I mean Woody Allen, the character. Like, in the in the film after Adderall, uh, there's something self-deprecating. And what's the word? That's just what popped into my head. Like that character, that persona that he projects, like there's some echo of it in you. Of course, of course, the persona, right? I mean, it's it's not actually me. Yeah. It's a a version of me or it's like a a reimagining of this whole situation as an absurd farce. Well, but you're kind of like, you know, in this equation, in the equation of I'm the memoirist who gets my book adapted, but gets shut out of the entire (laughs) process. Um, You know, you're sort of the punching bag, you know, like you're you're that comedic character. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny. It was so, yeah, it was so fun, though, to do. I mean, who knew? Now I want to act again. You know, like I wish, uh, I mean, I don't think, know that anybody will ever cast me, and I'm definitely not a strong enough person to go out on a million auditions. But if somebody ever saw the movie and wanted me to act in their movie, I would be totally, it was so, it was so fun. Wow. Well, you know, and um, this is what I got from watching. I watched it last night, and I was thinking to myself, like this is what a this is inspiring because this is what you can do now if you have the gumption and you can put the work in and you can rally the camera guy and you know there's a lot of moving parts to a movie, but um, the script defied my normal like I think you're sort of at this point in my life and it, you know anybody who's lived to an adult age sort of has I think hardwired into their brain certain expectations from a film narrative like certain beats that get hit you know you get there's certain storytelling beats that get hit 
And this didn't hue to that. Like, it surprised me. It kept me watching. And then it also felt deeply personal. And it felt like something new that I hadn't seen before. It was it was great. I was like, oh, like, this is uh, the kind of movie that Hollywood should be making. But it, it never will. It's just all Captain America and, you know, the X-Men. And, yeah. In the, you know, but you don't need Hollywood. You can this, get your camera and go make it. This is a small press movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but good. Thank God. It's very, it's very meta. It's very weird. You know, I mean, like if this was, you know, this is the kind of movie that Grey Wolf would put out if they were a movie distribution company. <laughs> right, but we need that. You know, it was super fun, and it'll get out there one way or another. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I would just it, it was it was very fulfilling experience. The whole thing of it, you know. And you had nobody lording over you, nobody giving yeah, you script well, notes. That's what made it so great, you know. I mean, I had so many problems with my producers in my first two movies. Like, I'd get into post-production, everything would just go to hell. I'd, end up, I'd be left holding the bag. And um, What do you mean by everything goes to hell and you get... I don't know. You know, like, they didn't do the taxes right, and, but I, everything's in my name. And I, I don't do well with producers. I don't do well with agents. I don't do well with managers, <laughs> you know. But in this movie, like in my last movie, I refused to take a single call from an actor's agent. No way. You know, agents talk to the producers. Producers don't do anything else but take the phone calls from those people because I'm not taking them. Um, but in this movie, no problem. You want me to talk to your agent? No problem. Agent calls. The answer is no. There's no money. Yeah. It's what? It's, a Z, it's no. And if you know the answer, it's like it's a very short phone call. The yeah. answer is no, and you guys can, are free to do whatever you want. But this is a deal. So everybody working on that movie was in it because they were like making something creative and cool. They knew that I wasn't making any money on it because it was a non-commercial project because there was no paperwork with anybody. There's no way I could make money on it. Yeah. Not real money. You know, maybe I'll make a hundred bucks showing it in an art gallery or something, right. but like right. not really. Um, and so the, ver the vibe on set when you're all just like making this art project, that was amazing, you know? And I didn't have a, I mean, I gave my roommate a producer credit, you know, and he was because just because but there wasn't a producer in like this the sense of the word that you might think there wasn't really a producer there was, and it when you don't do paperwork with people when you don't have contracts it gets so much easier yeah it's, it's just so much easier like that's how you make a low budget movie is you don't dot your i's or cross your t's you just let it hang out and you do whatever and you say okay later i probably won't be able to make any money on this because i'm not doing it the right proper way that i'm supposed to do it on the other hand, it's so much cheaper and easier to create and so much more fun. And you put it up on, like, are you going to eventually put it out uh, on iTunes and stuff like that? I don't that? know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe we'll just do special screenings. Yeah. Like, I like people watching it on a larger screen in a room with a bunch of other people. I feel like that's the way it should be watched. So as much as possible, I'll just do that. And what was the what was the aspect ratio? Was it? It's 4-3. 4-3. With which... the Academy ratio, okay. which is all the old movies are 4-3. Right, Casablanca is four three. Uh -huh. uh, Maltese Falcon is four three. It's it's the original television ratio. Okay, why that was an aesthetic choice? Yeah, uh, it makes it feel like an art film. Uh -huh. It makes it feel weird and you, arty. And you shot in black and white. Well, we didn't shoot in black and white, but after shooting in it, post. I decided to, to. I thought black and white was more suitable to the story. Right. Um, but four three makes everything feel like a picture. Like it, like a, like you're looking at a painting. Like a painting is more. I think Mona Lisa is four three. Okay. It's a, it's beautiful. It like the you know the widescreen like the sixteen nine, which would be a normal ratio. Uh, it's it's great for landscapes, but four three forces you to focus on the characters, mm -hmm. and so the person takes a, a much larger percentage of the screen than the than the background and the and the landscape. That's the kind of decision you could never get away with if you had like producers lording over you. <laughs> 
You know what I'm saying? Like it would be, yeah. it would be a tough one to get by. Like we want to do this in yeah, the Casablanca like, aspect like ratio. Fish Tank was four three. There are a few movies in four three, but I don't know of any big Hollywood movies that are ever in 4.3. I think Wes Anderson might have done some stuff in 4.3. It makes everything look more interesting to me. It just makes everything... And I'm not like some super photography person. You know what I mean? But I just... I just love four three. I just think it looks great. Yeah. Well, and you know, like they've, I've always read that you learn, like the way to learn how to make a film is to make a film. Right. There's, I couldn't have made this without making those other two movies first. It was a very expensive film school, right? Yeah. Because I made a seven hundred thousand dollar movie, and then I made a two hundred thousand dollar movie. We did all these kickstarters and stuff. Didn't make a dime on that movie. Um, and now I make a ten thousand dollar movie. But the ten thousand dollar movie is by far the best movie of the three. It's not really close, honestly. Well, you're learning. Yeah. Hopefully, the fourth one will be better still. I mean, I wrote four novels. My first three novels weren't very good. And so, wait, are you uh, are you writing another script right now? Like, you're just con- going to continue doing this? I mean, you know, I've got a bunch of things I have to f- kind of finish right now. Like, I have a gigantic article on Silicon Beach that I did for Epic Magazine. What's going on with that? What's that about? It's, you know, it's kind of there's a murder, and Silicon Beach is the new kind of tech capital in L.A., and, and it's kind of just about... Sex and murder and all this kind of—it's a kind of a. Tapestry. What's the murder? There was a murder where a hotel owner, Cadillac owner of the Cadillac Hotel, is accused of murdering a homeless guy um, on the boardwalk. But it's really about like the moment where like things gentrify to this point, yeah, where the stakes have gotten so high that maybe somebody gets killed in a situation where they might not have gotten killed. When there wasn't so much money at stake. When, yeah, when Venice just used to be groovy. Yeah. Um, but it kind of, it's more of just a tapestry where you just kind of get to know all these different characters. It took months and months to write. And um, there's still like little fact-checking stuff that has to be done. It's probably going to, I think, be published uh, this month. And uh, i got to finish that. I have an essay collection coming out from Grey Wolf. What's that about? Like, what are the? Is it a linked essays? Are they all di- different? They're all different, but you know they're in sections. They're meant to be read one after the other, so it's structured a certain way. And it has, but the uh, the essays themselves have to be edited because sometimes they get redundant, right? So I have to like go in and like change stuff, and uh, so I'm doing that. That's that's a lot of work. Yeah. And I've decided to start my own film festival, which is going to be like July. What's that going to be called? The Stephen Elliott? No, it's the Rumpus Lo-Fi Los Angeles Film Festival. Okay. And we're going to find some warehouse. I haven't found the space yet, but we're going to do it in Los Angeles on July 29th and July 30th. And that's when After Adderall will have its world, world premiere. So I kind of like, I guess I'm kind of like, I want to have every part of it. Right? I want to make the movie. <laughs> I want to control the place, you know, where it gets, where it premieres. I want to just kind of But see, you're, in, you're industrious. This goes back to where we started. Like, you I'm can, di- you, I'm difficult. You're difficult, but you're also <laughs> diligent, and you are persi- you know persistent. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Mm-hmm. You will make things happen. I think most people would just be like, "Oh, this is all too much." You Wouldn't know, you? but the problem—I mean, the problem with me, I guess—is like I'm just like a small-time hustler. You know, like I did this crazy book tour uh, that got like a lot of press, where like I said, "Okay, if you uh, let me read in your living room, if you can guarantee 20 people, I'll read in your living room." But you have to guarantee 20 people and you have to let me sleep on your couch. And I spent months traveling around the country doing this, right? I sold 1,200 books by hand. I made a profit, not a big profit, but I actually made a profit selling these books, right? So the, bookstore, the book tour made money as opposed to costing money, right? What is 1,200 books? It's nothing. And it's like a, it's a, it's a success. It's like I want to write a book about it called micro-marketing, you know? <laughs> right. Like how to turn not very much into a little bit more. 
like that's that's me. He's <laughs> right. like little hustles, you know. I'm just but, like, I'm, but little I'm hustles, such a, the little hustles that require a lot of work. I know, but I'm such a. It's just, I mean, hustles are hustles, but I'm basically. I mean, the glass ceiling is, is – I've never really gotten past this glass ceiling, I feel like. And You're on your way. Maybe it's because of the group homes or whatever. But, like, you know, I'm, I meet up with Jillian Lauren uh, around this time. And she has this book coming out called Some Girls, which is great. And she's This like, was a while back when you, were doing, your, when you back. were doing your tour. And she's like, I want to do what you're doing. I want to be punk rock. I want to, like – and I'm like, okay, well, you know, let's talk about it. Here's how you do it. You know, I'm like, why don't you pick me up – if you, as I told her, if you pick me up from the airport. So I was coming to L.A. I had never met her. Pick me up from the airport, drive me to this other place on the east side, and I'll tell you everything about it on the drive. So that's the deal, right? It's a pretty good deal. Yeah. She picks me up in a Lexus SUV, right? <laughs> and I'm, right away, I'm like, wait a second. You know, like, this is not for you. And then we're talking about her book, which I hadn't read yet, but it really is an amazing book. And, uh, you know, she's going on The View, you know? And I'm just like... <laughs> Why do you want to read to 20 people in people's living rooms and sleep on their couch? You don't want to do this. Oh, this you, is not for you. You will sell 50,000 books because you went on The View. And she was on Howard Stern, too, I think, for that, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you will sell 1,000 books after three months of really hard work. Right. You know, like, that's me. Like, I'm just, like, small time. It's like, it's like okay, I'm going to make my own $10,000 movie, you know, and I'm going to, like, do my own festival in a warehouse. But I'm. I, it's just, like... It's like, yeah, like, do th- it's, it's kind of like in the projects or something or where the person is just like dealing drugs at like, you know, and it's like, yeah, they're industrious and entrepreneurial, but they're not really making the big money. It's like that other whole other thing that's out there that's just not yeah, the, the big crowds, know, you know. I know, but I think that you could eventually get there, but you would get there on your own terms. Well, I'm hoping, that, I'm hoping my girlfriend gets there. Yeah, but, <laughs> I feel like you're going to get there. I have a good feeling about that. I, I have a good feeling about you. I think like... It might not be able. To, it might not always be apparent. It might take longer. Um, it might require. You know, I'm 44. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right that hey, time, listen, man. I just, yeah, I know. I mean, I'm I'm 40. I just, but I just talked to Cynthia Dupree Sweeney on this show, and she's in her 50s, and she just published her first novel, and it's this huge New York Times, mm-hmm. but you know, so I love those stories. Yeah, man. I mean, they keep you going, but it's like, who knows? And uh, you got so many different good things going on. Like something's going to pop eventually, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to be an optimist for you, Steve. You know, I'm 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 project driven. I get an idea to do something, and it becomes the only thing I can think about, and then I do it. And sometimes it's like I'm going to stop American Apparel from opening on Valencia, and sometimes it's I'm going to throw a lo-fi film festival, and sometimes I'm going to make this ten thousand dollar movie, and you know, and sometimes like I'm going to do like Letters in the Mail, which was this huge success and made a bunch of money for a minute, you know. Um, but it's yeah, I just I follow whatever those impulses are. You have good instincts. Well, you know, I have instincts. You, know? <laughs> you follow them. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I've spent $10,000 building a typewriter app that turned your iPad into a typewriter. Oh, right. You know, with like liquid paper and everything. Like you swipe your finger over something and it's a splotch of white and you see the letter underneath it. You, you can't, you type over something, you see the letter underneath what you've typed, you right, know, right. it has the sounds and everything. You have, you have swipe back at the end of every page. I thought this was the coolest thing ever and that. I'd just be a millionaire now, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was like $10,000 gone. Right. You know? <laughs> but see, I don't know. I have great, because uh, I'm sort of similar, maybe not to the degree that you are, but I, I have affection for people who pursue those things. No, you're very similar. I mean, that's what you do, I mean, with a nervous breakdown and stuff. I mean, yeah. I mean, just like making stuff. I, I'm, I, I like to try to make stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and this podcast, which is out of nowhere, this huge success, it's like got to be the biggest thing in the literary world, radio. It's wise. huge. Keep saying that. Hey, you know what? It's a... Uh, <laughs> 
It might be, you know, a small, it's like a small world, but yeah. it's the biggest thing in it. Yeah, that's right. You know? big, big fish, small pond. It's like being a famous poet. <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, I don't know. And, and this fe- film festival, you're going to screen your own movie, but obviously you're going to screen other people's yeah, movies. Yeah, because I just finished this huge, so when I, when I started going around to festivals uh, with my last movie and now with this new one, I was like, you know, I just got to figure out how these things work. Like, why did my first movie, which wasn't even as good, I played at Berlin, I and I got invited to all these other festivals, and never paid a submission fee, but I had a lot of famous people in it and i had producers that, get, that gets the the fee waived i guess so yeah well i was looking into it i was like let me figure out how these work you know and so i just do it as an article i'll start interviewing people but then i started finding out all this crazy data you know so it ended up taking me weeks because what i found out was that the movies the festivals were programming movies that didn't pay the the submission fee like some festivals were only programming movies that didn't pay the submission fee and where they were getting, like, thousands of submissions from narrative feature films, they were paying, like, up to $100 to submit, but they weren't none of them, but none of those movies were being programmed. And uh, in order to get this data, I literally interviewed over 100 directors or filmmakers. I would look, go to the film festival catalog. I'd contact every filmmaker who had a feature, a narrative feature. Didn't do documentaries or shorts, just narrative features. And I'd contact them and ask them, did you pay a submission fee? And then what other, what other festivals did you pay, play, and did you pay a submission fee to any of those? And the data was insane. You know, there was like 17 out of 37 festivals that I surveyed had not programmed a single film that paid a submission fee. And But for every, every whatever, I mean, and these festivals are programming what? How many films make it into this? It could, be, it could be like more than 100. It could be 200 if it's like Seattle International. But then you, know, like you, you burrow down, like, well, how many of those are actually narrative features? You're probably looking at like, 20 to 30. So for every 20 to 30 narrative features that do get programmed, the fees are waived. How many are paying? How many films that don't make the program are paying fees? Well, if you're talking about Sundance, you're probably talking 4,000 narrative features that are paying like between 50 and $100. Uh, LA Film Festival, Tribeca, you're probably talking like 2,000. And then something like Chicago, Atlanta, uh, San Francisco, like larger second tier regional festivals, maybe 1,000 to 1,500. Those are actually the most egregious because uh, festivals like Cinequest, which is actually a really good festival, but festivals like um, Tribeca and Sundance, those are premiere only in South by Southwest, whereas a festival like Cleveland is taking all the best movies from those festivals and programming them and then taking maybe one or two from the blind submissions. But really, they're just cherry-picking all the best movies that played at film festivals in the last year. Right. Right, they know what the, sometimes I had one programmer tell me that they knew what movie they were going to program before the movie was even finished. You know, while, while it was in production, they programmed a movie. Um, another programmer said that you should never pay a submission fee. That if they're charging you a submission fee, they don't want your movie. And I've heard, I mean, I've heard, it's like, it's like, we talked about this before we came on, but it's sort of like when someone's um, saying, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll read your submission on the literary side, but you've got to pay me 75 bucks just to read it. That's could usually you, a bad sign. Could you imagine if a publisher charged people to submit their books, but only published books by people that didn't pay a submission? Right, right. There would be, imagine if it was poets, there'd be blood in the street. I mean, we're talking <laughs> beheadings. We're talking like the reign of terror. You know, could you imagine? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's really kind of, kind of a scandal. And I published it uh, on the Rumpus. I called it the Great, Rock and, or the Great Film Festival Swindle, based on the Great Rock and Roll Swindle. It's the Sex Pistols movie. And... Um, but it, it inspired me. Uh, I wanted to do this film festival because I wanted to program all these movies, uh, these filmmakers that I talked to, 
some of whom is like the one, especially the ones that played the really hardest to get into festivals, but paid the submission fee. Yeah. Like, how the hell? The, like this movie, Embers. It got into Chicago, Cleveland. It's it's harder to get into those places in South by Southwest because they're programming all the best from all the other festivals. They have one or two spots, maybe. And Embers got into all of them and paid all the submission fee. I was like, this is, must be the best movie ever made. Right. I haven't seen it, but I mean, it's got to be worthy of an Academy Award. And so I wanted to program movies like that, Creep Moria, other movies that I came across. I basically did the uh, work of finding a film festival program in writing the article. So we're not charging any fees, but we're also not taking submissions. It's just invite only. I'm just going to program this. And then, I'll, but it'll also be the world uh, world premiere of After Adderall. And that'll be one, it's going to be a one day festival, or like a weekend. It's going to be a weekend. It'll be a two day festival, maybe three. And it's also going to have great panels because we're going to have like uh, a panel on film festivals with like the programmer from Cinequest, the programmer I think from Dances with Films, but the programmer from Slam Dance for sure. Yeah. Um, and maybe the person that programmed AFI for ten years. And I'll like moderate that maybe, or somebody else will moderate it. We're also going to have a uh, a uh, panel of authors that have had their books made into movies. So I'm going to ask, like... Kind of like in uh, After Adderall. Exactly. We have a scene in After Adderall. You have this panel, which was an actual panel that we did. I, okay, I thought I remember seeing that on the internet. Like, oh, there's yeah. a panel. And I was like, oh, so was this a real panel? And then you filmed it, and then you did, like, a little bit of extra shooting? Yes, that's exactly what we did. So in, in After Adderall, which is so low budget and bootstrap, uh, there's a scene in the bookstore, right? So in order to do a scene in the bookstore, we just did a real reading. <laughs> when Nick Flynn and, and Marie Howe did readings in this bookstore and then we had the actress go up and do her reading right after so we had the crowd already yeah and we shot just a few quick lines feel saying stuff that we needed said um it was actually very impressive in like two hours we'd done six pages wow. from the script you know <laughs> um but we got the bookstore by doing the reading and same with uh the panel we need to do a panel so in order to do it we did a, a fundraiser for 826 and we just did a panel with uh, with memoirists who have had their memoirs made into movies. Was that out here? We actually filmed it in L.A. In yeah. the movie, it's supposed to be in New York. Right. But all those authors were actually in L.A., so it was actually easier to film it at 826 L.A. And right. I know Joel, who runs it, who's like the world's greatest human being. Um, so we did it. As, we raised money for them. We did it as a fundraiser for them. But then we just shot. We had cameras going. We had a few scripted lines. You know, like the young girl who says, you know, you know how do your parents feel about yeah, you know, yeah. appropriating their lives? Um, was but, she just somebody in the crowd or was she an actress? She's my friend's daughter. Oh, okay. And she, was, uh, she had mentioned that she was jealous of me because I got to be on television. Uh-huh. And I was like, bring, you know, so she was bringing her to the thing. And I was like, we'll put her on. No yeah, problem. Yeah. You know, she's <laughs> like, well, she's like eight years old. You know, so it's hilarious. Um but yeah, so the few lines that were scripted, but most of it is just actually edited from the actual panel. Um, and so you got to think that way when you're trying to make a movie with no money. Like, how do I get the space for free? Yeah, creative thinking. Yeah. And you're like two birds with one stone. And, yeah. You know, you're getting free, uh, what's it, locations? Exactly. That's how you do it. You know, like you got to kind of think outside the box. What can I give the? What can I give them? And I was impressed by the writers on camera. They're pretty good. Oh, yeah. Jerry Stallone. Well, all of them. Yeah. Jerry, yeah. Jerry, I mean, I've, I've interviewed Jerry. I've interviewed Susan Orlean. And uh, Evan, Evan, Evan. Um, I haven't talked to him, but I've been with those people. Like they're they're kind of, they're good show people. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like Jerry's a character and Susan's a character. Mm-hmm. Evan, who did uh, Generation Kill. Yeah. You know, yeah, he's amazing. And, you know, his girlfriend was in the audience, uh-huh. Jasmine St. Clair. And when I met her earlier that day, she told me that she originally met him because he had written an article about her. And he, she didn't like how she came out in that article. And that's how oh. they originally met. Oh, right. And I was like... 
you have to say that. Yeah. You have to She's raise the girl your, who says that. Yeah, so you have oh. to raise your hand during the panel and ask that question, you know. And so she raised her hand and she says, you know, I have a question. You wrote an article about me. I did not like it. And he's like, uh, that's not a question, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, right. And she's just like, you know, mad-dogging him, just staring at him. Yeah. So funny. Right. That actually happened. There's some version of that. Yeah, and every, but nobody in the audience knew that was coming. So that was like, everybody's like... People, people thought that was real. So, okay, so let me ask you a question. What, like, what about James Franco? Like, are you, what kind of terms are you on with him? Are you guys buddies? Does he, know, has he seen this film? Does he know you made it? I'm sure he knows we made it, because how could he not know we made it? Yeah. Um, but I guess we're not on good terms. I thought we were on good terms. Um, I mean, you know, he never... He always, he's always making appointments with me and then not showing up, so... Whatever, he just right? like doesn't show up at all. Does he tell you he's not coming? No, he doesn't tell me. He just doesn't show up. Like even before they did the Adderall Diaries, the day before shooting, his assistant made an appointment with me to talk with him about me and how to play this character, right? Um, and he just didn't show up. It just never. I, mean, it was a phone, I think it was a phone meeting or whatever. But it just never happened. But I actually had places where we were supposed to meet in places because I wanted to show him about Cherry. He has a male lead in my first movie, which he kept referring to anytime I was asked about it as a cameo. It's not a cameo. You know, he's in, it's the male lead. You know, he's in like nine scenes in eight different locations. Um, so I wanted to show it to him. He kept making a, uh, kept agreeing that we were going to meet and he was going to show it. And then he kept not showing up. One time he said he's going to interview me for Playboy. And so I changed the flight to do the interview with him and just blew it off. So whatever on that. But I mean, ultimately, I don't know. I don't, I don't care about any of that, but... Uh, then recently, I guess he was doing these like letters back and forth with the poet, and the poet was like, "Let's run it on the rumpus," and he was like, "No way, I don't want to be on the rumpus." So that's when I realized, oh, we're not. I think we're not on good terms. Over what? I don't know. I mean, okay, actually, I think I do know. Okay. What probably is is after I saw the Adderall Diaries, the movie that he produced and plays the lead in. He's the one that bought the rights to the book, right? He didn't direct the movie, but he made it happen. Um. After I saw it, I wrote an article in, for New York Magazine about the experience of seeing myself portrayed on screen and what that was like and what that means, and narrative. It's really a think piece. But in the article, I said that the movie wasn't good. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't meant as a review. It was just like, here's what, the movie doesn't work for these reasons, you know, because, like, the book is about ideas and the movie is about actions. And it's like, that, that doesn't translate. Um, and... Uh, so that's probably why. I don't know if it happened before. Maybe, maybe before that. Maybe that's why. I was, maybe the reason I wasn't allowed on set is because there's actually something earlier than that. But I have definitely not heard from him since I said that his movie wasn't good. Which I get, I guess, because I'm not usually friends with people that publicly state they don't like my books. Right. <laughs> you know? So. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I mean, I, I can see a scenario where somebody like says, like, I, you know, I, this book doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And then you can still be friends with them. It'll bother you, but you can still... I can see it. You can imagine it. You can imagine it. You can imagine it. It's it's possible. It's possible. It's conceivable. It's not the most likely scenario. Right. But it could theoretically happen. But I think that we had some split before that. I mean, I think that we had weirdness. He thought that he owned the rights to Happy Baby, and he didn't realize that I had rejected his offer for Happy Baby, and that I had then gone and made the movie on my own. And he got really mad at me about that. And I was like, first off, you don't own the rights. He was like, we spent all this money developing it. I was like, no, you didn't. You didn't. I didn't accept your offer. You didn't spend any money developing it. You didn't, you didn't give me anything. And also, if you want to make it, make it. Like, there could be two versions of this movie. Who cares? Right. Like, if you're a filmmaker, make the movie. I'm telling you, you can ha- make the movie. All I'm saying is, I'm also going to make it. So I basically gave him the rights to Happy Baby for free. 
And I was like, just go make it, man. And I told him that I had, just didn't have any interest in him as a producer. I, only, I was only interested in him as an artist, as somebody who makes things, not somebody who buys things and develops them. Right. Um, and he didn't like that. Maybe not. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, this is the thing, though. I mean, somebody's going to buy the rights to your, like, make me an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> you know, like, I gave him the rights for free. I was like, who cares if there's two versions of this movie? Yeah, but I mean, what I'm saying is, like, if you, like, I don't understand how somebody can feel a sense of ownership over something that they don't, they didn't pay for, mm-hmm. or if they, they, you know, he didn't realize he hadn't paid for it. He didn't oh, realize that oh, I had turned okay. down his offer. I got gotcha. you. And he surra- he was surrounded by people at the time who, uh, I mean, his manager at the time, this guy uh, Miles Levy, incapable of telling the truth, like phys- physically incapable. Right, like yeah, <laughs> you know, just couldn't. You know, uh, of course, I realized at some point that James knew that, and James kept him around for a reason. You know, and so he was really doing it on James' behalf. But uh, still, I mean, I think people just didn't tell him stuff. He's just a lot of people. You know, a big celebrity is just a is an or, is an industry. Yeah, I know that's the thing, and they, they, you, at a certain point. You get surrounded by people who it's in their uh, financial best interest to just tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. But ultimately, you know, I don't have anything against him. I'm certainly glad he made the Adderall Diaries. Um, I would like, I would work with him again. I guess the problem is I just wouldn't, people, I, at one point I wanted to ask him to actually read his lines because there is a James Franco character in After Adderall. He's played by a picture of himself, you know, because the phone rings and it's James, it's James and the girl puts a picture of his a picture of James Franco next to the phone and the phone starts talking and I wanted him to actually read his own lines and I thought he would be into that and it's funny it's kind of his sense of humor at least in terms of like his public persona uh, but I didn't ask him because I knew even if he said yes he wasn't going to show up so then I was <laughs> like you know I need to get this done and I think I'll just end up burning time if I actually ask him so I didn't ask him who did it? Uh, oh this this guy uh, this actor David um, oh what's his last name? That's going to kill me. That's anyway. Not, that stuff happens. But yeah, yeah. you know, um, I was wondering. I was listening. I was like, that's not James Franco. No. I, I sort of wondered if that was... I would have loved for it to be James Franco. I think that would have been so interesting. But I think, I think he might have said yes. I just think he wouldn't have actually shown up. Okay. I think he says yes to a lot of things and doesn't show up for them, which is, you know, fine. He's a big celebrity. I mean, the fact that he put him one day on About Cherry, I was able to... And, even, you know, I made it seem like he was there for a week because we shot nine scenes with him. But uh, like military style, you know, we did nine scenes and I had them for 17 hours based on that one day based on that one day I was able to raise uh, $700,000 to make this movie wow from so, from whom like from Kickstarter or from just no, independent no. producers uh, independent producers and a, a trade with uh, with kink.com and the armory uh, for, for like 200000 so I mean the two producers for like 250000 each and um, but also because I was able to get all these other stars like Heather Graham and Dev Patel, Lily Taylor, who I know, so I knew she was going to do it because she's married to Nick Flynn, right? And we're best friends. But um, so you had all these big stars, and so but because of James Franco, I raised seven hundred thousand dollars. And you realize, like, I used to think that like he's wasting he, my time is just as valuable as his time. It's like it's not right. <laughs> actually, you know, it just isn't. No. You know, and in fact, it's not even close. I don't know what fraction. Of his time, my time is worth, but it's a very small fraction. Yeah. You know? I mean, like, I raised $700,000 based on a day of his time. Wow. You know? That's probably as much money as I've made in my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know? <laughs> right. He just says, yes, I'll spend 17 hours doing this. Yeah. Though, on the other side of that is he actually said he would spend four days, and he didn't. And he didn't. And he tried to get out of the movie. Wow. And we had to, like, basically threaten a lawsuit. Jesus. Because everything was all in place, and, you know, 
you're ready to shoot. So what are you going to do? You know. But on the other hand, if he hadn't said yes, I don't do the movie at all. You know. So he did me this huge favor. Right. On on balance, he's done much more for me than I've done for him. Right. Like, it's not even close. Right. <laughs> you know. So um, he's only been a positive thing in my life, and and I wish him the best. I think he was great in the end. Yeah. I think he was great in Howl. Yeah. You know. I think he's a great. He can, he's a great actor sometimes, and um, great in Spring Breakers. And yeah. You know, whatever. I mean, I would be happy to hang out with him any time. I don't think he needs me. <laughs> right. I think he'll do fine. <laughs> He's got a lot of friends. <laughs> yeah, he'll do okay. So I can't uh, have you here and not ask you like at least one, like uh, a little bit of about BDSM. It figures into <laughs> After Adderall. Um, I'm like a normcore dad. Mm-hmm. I have some confusion about BDSM mm-hmm. and like you know. And first of all, you're on camera. Doing some stuff. Uh, yeah. It's pretty brave. You well, because my, my, I'm telling the story in the movie yeah. about a girl I was in love with. It's a true story, by the way. Yeah. I was in love with this woman who would only hook up with me when her ex-boyfriend was taking pictures. And so she would, because then it was work, because she was a dominatrix and she had this website. And so she would make excuses to take these pictures. And uh, she we would take pictures. There's no way she could use these pictures. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I would just be like, let's do like, let's do a trial run. Let's do like film. Let's do audio. I don't care. You know, I was in love with this person. I was yeah. insane over her. Yeah. Um, so that was a true story. And so I'm telling that story. And as I'm telling that story in the movie, you're seeing us do these things while this guy is taking a picture. And my roommate's like, you know, you always find some way to talk about BDSM in everything you write. And I say, well, it's like Joyce Carol, uh, or, or um, it's like Flannery O'Connor was with religion. Right. You know? <laughs> and it is, I mean, it's funny, but it is that way, right? Like Flannery O'Connor always put religion in her work, her, everything she, so nobody really thinks about it. It's just like, that's what she did. That's what she wanted to write about. Yeah. Um, BDSM has had a really outsized presence in my life, actually, though. How did you get into it? I've always been, it's my only sexuality, you know? Like, I thought, of my, I, thought I was asexual for years, actually. Because I just didn't want to have penetrative sex with anybody. Um, all my desires from like the moment I hit puberty to now, all my desires were based around BDSM. You know, I mean, it, it changes, you know, it goes from like cross-dressing and used to be like more into humiliation. And then um, like, I remember the first time a girlfriend pierced me while I was tied up. And I was like, you can't do that again. That was not okay. You know, and now like, you know, since then I've, I've had been stuck full of needles you know so, <laughs> you're like so, i have a knife in my side right you know now. <laughs> i well i dated this this woman for a while and she, we slept with a sharp knife next to the bed and she would just cut me all the time Dude, it was like it was like bloodletting and it was like i was like walking around in a daze because i always had these endorphins going i could never quite think straight i just lost like six months of my life you're losing blood <laughs> the first the first time i broke up i looked around and i was like where are my friends right. you know? <laughs> like what happened you know i'd lost my job at stanford i mean i like i lost everything Dating this girl, I couldn't even think straight. Wow, you know, but it was worth it. You get you get like this. Someone's cutting you, or like you're tied up, and someone's sticking a needle into you. Do you get hard? Yeah, 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 definitely. While I mean, that's happening, so much of it is about the the chemistry between the two people. It really depends a lot on the other person. It's like I don't want just anybody to, to stick me with a needle, and and no, nobody enjoys it when you step on their foot. Right. Right. So like what we think about masochists is a masochist is not someone who just enjoys any pain. You know, there has to be a psychological context to it. So there has to be some erotic um, transaction going on. So it's actually very complicated. When I met my, my current girlfriend, 
who I did not think was kinky and I didn't think I was going to ever date her. I remember having like a little fantasy of like, but what if she just put a leash on me right now and just like said something really mean and we walked out of the room? Like then, okay. Then now, I mean, she's gorgeous, but I couldn't actually imagine having sex with her without some kind of, you know, weird scenario around it. You know, without the psychological element, as beautiful as she is, I couldn't even imagine it. And that's just, that is your sexual preference or is there a, is there like a, a deeper, preference. Or, it's a, it's, this is what I would say. Well, you could say it is a preference, but it's like this. It's like most people are like a Safari browser, right? And you download the bondage plugin, you know, maybe the boot fetish plugin, maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe you have an Asian fetish. I don't know. Whatever, you know, whatever it is, like you download these plugins. Maybe you do a little bondage, you know, maybe you do like anal sex, whatever it is with their plugins, right? And then you have like Firefox and those people are gay, right? They're not... <laughs> And, and they have their own plugins, but they're not hooking up with people who are Safari and Firefox are not hooking up. Yeah. You know, because they're, they're not wired in a compatible way. Right. You know, and, and both sides are downloading various plugins and, that are changing and, and altering and, like, you know, uh, you know, enhancing or deconstructing. But then some people are Chrome. You know, it's like it's not a plugin. I'm America Online. <laughs> it's like, you know, for some people, it's not a plug-in. It's the entire sexuality. Right. And that's me, and that's most of the people I've been able to date for any amount of time because I'm just not comp actually sexually compatible. You know, uh, for a long time, I stopped dating because I was just like, you know what? I've dated my dating pool. My dating pool is like five people, and I've dated them. <laughs> you know? Max this out. Yeah. And I would, like, try to, like, get people to cuddle or something. You know what I mean? I still, like, want that physical attention, but... I didn't have sex for years because I, I don't actually have much interest in in what we think of as sex. So you didn't miss it. That's not my thing. Yeah. You know, I, I would have play partners. I'd have people that I knew that we would maybe do BDSM together. We weren't dating, but we would like, you know, do some BDSM. You know, uh, sometimes I'd just pay for it and just do a session with a dominatrix. I, you know, usually one, often someone I'd know as a friend. You know, where you're like. We would hang out sometimes, and then sometimes I'd pay them <laughs> to do this thing that I just had to do, or I was going to go insane. Wow. You know? Um, and that's it, you know? I don't know why I'm wired that way. You haven't ever, like, been like, oh, so this is the, you know, this is, like, the, the uh, read up rosebud on, or whatever. I've read on, up on it a lot. You know, I can, like, I can pose theories. Maybe it's because of this, you know? Maybe it's because my father was so mean and said such terrible things to me, and I grew up in this really violent household where he was always exploding, and there was no safety, and my mother was paralyzed for five years. Uh, from age of like from me being at eight to thirteen, and she died when I was thirteen, right? So she's diagnosed with MS. She's paralyzed right away. She's incontinent, and she dies five years later. Ugh. And it's like, you know, so yeah, maybe it's all of that, right? I was so terrified of my father. I was so locked in. I was so locked into being the victim, and so also terrified of being my father, of being the aggressor, of making someone. Uh, be, I was terrified of being a predator. Yeah. You know, terrified around women. Um, I mean, I think unsuccessfully, I think that I have actually made women uncomfortable at times uh, when I was younger, and I hope to obviously never do that again, but, you know, you, you learn. It's a process. But um, uh, but still, you know, there's kind of this victim thing embedded. I don't know. But yeah. It's just theory, because why other people grow up in that kind of environment, and they become very aggressive, you know, and, they become, and uh, some become sadists. Some don't become anything. Right. And I don't think that we really know, you know, I mean, because I've, I've read a lot on it. And it doesn't seem nobody seems to know. And actually. you meet like you meet somebody in your dating pool, like you meet a, a woman who's into this, 
Mm-hmm. Um, are there any like parallels? You see, like, oh, you, we both have this, or no, no. It's every, every, nothing like that. Like snowflakes, everyone's yeah, different. Snowflakes, and uh, but it is very tricky, right? Because it's a power exchange, and it's very hard to leave it in the bedroom. And so, how do you like just leave that in the bedroom, and then when you're not doing that, just act like normal people? Yeah. And also, you can't have quickies. <laughs> it takes a really long time. <laughs> There's all this gear. Yeah, you can't just do like a ten minute thing. You know, it always takes it always takes all this time. And it's yeah. really it's really uh, pain, a pain, it's really consuming and and, and uh, it's actually very hard. I, f- I find, and I think most many people find, it's very hard to maintain a serious relationship uh, when this is your pre- when this is a situation. It's a real barrier. Yeah. You know, uh, so I've had relationships with people who I wasn't sexual with, you know, or like, like my last serious girlfriend before my current girlfriend, she, I never saw her naked. We were together a year and a half. Wow. You know, um, like not even incidentally, like, Oh, you're taking a shower. No, not incidentally. Wow. No. All right. Um, that was just what, you know, that that was, we had things we did. I was naked, you know, she was really into cross-dressing boys and I was really into that. And so, and she like tie me up and we do these things, but you know, it's just, it's limiting and, and can be difficult. Um, I've also been with people who are like, I'm not dating, but we're friends and we're cuddling. We're like sharing the bed for months at sometimes. Uh, but just cuddling, just cuddling. And I thought that was fine, but I realized ultimately that those people, those people always left me when they found a real boyfriend and I realized, <laughs> Oh, I'm just a placeholder. You're just like the little cuddle station. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> and so I stopped doing that, you know? Yeah. Uh, I became like really much more careful and selective and like, I don't even... I don't. I don't flirt with people anymore. I think I used to be just automatically flirtatious. I don't do that because it's like, you know, like why? Mm. You know, like it's not. It's just not going to work if we're not compatible. And so I need to get to know you before I even think about flirting with you. Right. <laughs> you know, right. this is not something you're not going to surprise me with. Like a room full of leather gear. You know, I'll know that probably before we decide to give it a try right but i mean is that part of that's part of the screening process when you say getting to know you like i've got to know that you're at least like a uh, like amenable to this before I yeah could... yeah and but it, it's not even yeah yeah i would have to know that before we even you know bothered because why bother yeah and is you there know? any i mean like but you you would they would let me know somehow i'm not gonna ask them are you amenable to this because i don't want you to you have to be into it it's like i don't want you if you're just doing it for my sake it's like some kind of quid pro quo okay then i'm gonna do your thing that's not how it works. Right. I'm not like it's like you don't ask you know someone to like do something that's not inside the sexual sexuality. So it has to be like you're both enjoying your side of it. Right. Yeah, so it's very complicated, and uh, and I, a lot of people in the community because I'm really gotten really deep in the community in recent years. You well, know, I mean, most, I, you you talk about it, you write about it, you're open about it. Most of my friends in New York are in that community. That's my world. That's the world that I, I you know that I live in. But. Um, a lot of them talk about how it's great and it's therapeutic and we have like when we have sex it's like more intense than when other people have sex and, all that. and I'm just like I think it's a drag I would not choose this sexuality but at the same time you are what you are and you try to be healthy about it and, and accept it and and you know succeed within your limitations well there you go there you go well uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you after right all this time congratulations on uh, the book the uh, the article for Epic is that right? For, uh, it's an so, article for Epic. Silicon so yeah. Beach, uh, After Adderall, the film, and then the Rumpus and the film Lo-Fi festival. Film Festival Rumpus coming Lo-Fi, up. Lo-Fi, Los Angeles Film Festival. Coming up at an uh, at a as yet to be determined location later this summer. In LA, in East LA or downtown, July thirtieth. All right, Stephen. 
Good luck with everything. Thank you, Matt. It was amazing. Okay, Stephen Elliott, folks. If you're going to be in in uh, Los Angeles on July 30th, go to the Rumpus Lo-Fi Los Angeles Film Festival and uh, catch the world premiere of After Adderall. You can find Stephen online at stephenelliott.com. He's on Twitter, where his handle is, I believe, at S underscore underscore Elliott. Also, be sure to check out the rumpus.net. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget that this podcast has its own app, The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's available wherever you get your apps. It's free. It's the best way to listen to this uh, program. Get the app on your device. It's free. When you do that, the most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you. You know how this works, right? You get the most recent 50 for free. And then if you want to get at the archives, get access to everything, more than 400 episodes and counting, you just sign up for a premium subscription for 75 cents a month right there within the app. You can sign up right there within the app, 75 cents a month, access to everything everywhere you go at your fingertips. It's easy. It's a great way to support the program. If you would like to uh, email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So uh, the move, the move is probably uh, like it's sort of kind of happening as you're listening to this. If you're listening to this on the day of its release or a couple days after, it's all happening. I'm feeling this, uh, this urge to get new stuff. I'm moving. I want to turn over a new leaf. I feel like I need new microphones for this show. These microphones are old. They're dusty. I have two different kinds. One for me, one for my guest. That was a mistake. It's always been that way. I want matching microphones. I also might have to find a new place to record. I don't know if I'm going to be able to record in the new house in a way that's uh, satisfactory, comfortable. In which case, where do I go? What do I do? The Other People Podcast is at a crossroads. Stay tuned. Please remember that Karl Marx never in his life saw the inside of a factory and that T.S. Eliot was afraid of cows. That's it for now. Uh, it's the end of the program. We've reached the end, or we are rapidly approaching it. Thank you to Stephen Elliott. Check out his film, After Adderall. Go to the uh, Rumpus Lo-Fi Los Angeles Film Festival on July 30th. And thanks to you guys for listening. As always. I'll be back next week, I think. Fingers crossed. It's chaotic. I'm fatigued. I'm experiencing fatigue. (laughs) 